Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe lied to the International Olympic Committee in 2013 in order to secure the 2020 Olympics for Tokyo. He said that, regarding the triple nuclear meltdown at Fukushima, quote, the situation is under control. He obviously wasn't thinking about food safety and the dangers of internal contamination by radiation. So when a real expert on radiation in food reports about tests run on Japanese food, large number of strontium-90 contaminations were found. And the one we found the most disturbing was almost all of the baby food samples had strontium-90 in them. When you hear something like that, that's when you know that you are in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we look at post-Fukushima food safety how it relates to the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, and the upcoming Becquerel Awareness Day by talking with three remarkable interviewees. Kimberly Roberson of the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, Cindy Folkers of Beyond Nuclear, and Nancy Faust of Simply Info. Then we talk with the firecracker activist Alex Cohen of So Much Water, one of the organizers behind the recent Westlake Landfill Nonviolent Civil Disobedience, a.k.a. protests, in North St. Louis. Alex talks about what it's like to chain oneself to a 500-pound block of cement in the pathway of massive trucks just to make people aware of the nuclear disaster in their own backyard. Then we've got your numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the duck and cover report, on the latest reportable problems at those crumbling U.S. nuclear reactors, plus news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information than will be mentioned at any time in the entire hoped-for filibuster of the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 4th, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Some 120 countries gathered at the United Nations this week to draft a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. 2,000 scientists signed an open letter endorsing the UN talks. More than 220 citizens groups supported the goals of the conference. And on Tuesday, Pope Francis encouraged the United Nations to pursue the total elimination of nuclear weapons. The problem is that none of the nine nations that actually have nuclear weapons bothered to attend, including the United States. As interviewed on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, 
Zia Mian, a physicist, nuclear expert, and disarmament activist who is co-director of the Program on Science and Global Security at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University, said, After 70 years, the vast majority of countries in the world have decided they've had enough of waiting for the United States and the other countries with nuclear weapons to keep their promise that they would get rid of nuclear weapons. Enough is enough. We are now going to create an international treaty that will ban nuclear weapons, and you are going to be nuclear outlaws. I will have an interview on the U.N. conference and the aftermath on next week's nuclear hot seat. Westinghouse Electric Company, which helped drive the development of nuclear energy and the electric grid itself, filed for bankruptcy protection on Wednesday, March 29. The filing comes as the company's corporate parent, Toshiba of Japan, scrambles to staunch huge losses stemming from Westinghouse's troubled nuclear construction projects at Vogel in Georgia and Summer in North Carolina. Now the future of those projects, four reactors, which once seemed to be on the leading edge of a renaissance for nuclear energy, is in doubt. hoo Westinghouse's Japanese parent company, Toshiba, declared that its nuclear power business has already lost $6 billion, which could go up to $10 billion, and the company is seeking ways to limit its liabilities. The cost for the two nuclear projects in the American South are running $1 billion to $1.3 billion higher than originally expected and about three years behind schedule so far. Speaking of problems at nuclear reactors, here's the latest reportable problems at those crumbling reactors in the nuclear hot seat duck (laughs) and cover report. Ultimate duck and cover at the Pilgrim Nuclear Plant in Massachusetts at the foot of Cape Cod with two, count them, two problems this week alone. On Monday, March 27, the system used to cool the reactor during an emergency went offline for about 40 minutes when technicians doing routine testing on another reactor system triggered the wrong switch. It was a condition that could have prevented fulfillment of a safety function in an emergency. Then on Friday, March 31st, operators failed to follow standard procedure and incorrectly realigned some valves, causing water to flood from a massive storage tank into the reservoir at the base of the reactor known as the Taurus, which plays a role in depressurizing and cooling down the reactor in a severe accident. David Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Project for the Union of Concerned Scientists, said, When control room operators err during low-stress, fairly common activities— One has to wonder how they will perform in the highly stressful conditions during an infrequent accident. Their proper responses can turn an accident into an incident. Their improper responses can turn an accident into a disaster. (coughs) At Cook in Michigan, an unusual event, that's NRC languaging, not descriptive, an unusual event declared on the 30th of March, too many to go into detail. Fermi in Michigan, Susquehanna in Pennsylvania, Fitzpatrick in New York, Hatch in Georgia, Vogel in Georgia, Diablo Canyon in California, Comanche Peak in Texas, Robinson in South Carolina, all had reportable events to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the last week. Duck for real. (laughs) In Japan, 
The end of March marked the end of public housing assistance for people who had voluntarily evacuated from areas located outside of the no-go zones at Fukushima out of fear of radioactive pollution. Residents of Namie, Itate, the Yamakia district in Kawamata, and Tomioka had their evacuation orders lifted. But according to Japan Times, only 14.5% of residents who have previously had their evacuation orders lifted have returned to their homes. According to Greenpeace Japan, orders are being lifted in areas that are too contaminated for people to safely live. The public is being given deliberately misleading information regarding the risks and extent of the cleanup efforts. Worse, the government is pressuring people to return to the contaminated areas by stripping self-evacuees of their housing support this month and compensation for those in the areas lifted next year. This is economic coercion, not a choice freely made. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, numbnuts out of week. Compound numbnuts from Japan this week. A dairy farm near the disaster-struck Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant began shipping raw milk again on Tuesday, January 24th. Milk produced at the farm in the Naraha district had been checked for radioactive cesium every week from last May to December, with no reading ever surpassing the government-set limit of, get this, 50 becquerels per kilogram. You don't want to take anything in your body that is allowed to have as much as 50 becquerels per kilogram, or even one becquerel per kilogram. You'll understand that even more after you hear today's featured interviews. And in a continuation from a previous numnuts, soil from the Fukushima prefecture may be used as landfill for the creation of quote-unquote green areas in Japan. The advisory panel of the Environment Ministry on Monday, March 27, proposed reusing soil that was contaminated during the Fukushima nuclear meltdown of 2011, you know, that stuff that's in the big green trash bags that are decaying, using that as part of future landfills designated for public use. This according to Kyoto News. The environmental panel avoided openly using the word park and instead said green space. And only following an inquiry from the news outlet did the Ministry of Environment clarify that parks are included in the green space. The ministry also stressed the need to create a new organization that will be tasked with gaining public trust about the prospects of such modes of recycling. In other words, a ministry of radiation propaganda. Radiation is bad. We should not be exposed to it. And pretending that it's going to be okay if you just bury it deep enough and put some stuff on top of it, and it won't migrate further in the environment, and it won't hurt people, or maybe you'll just be far enough away from it that it won't hurt you or your career, is just short-sighted, stupid, heartless, and cruel. And that's why Japan's government, and specifically the Ministry of the Environment, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. And in China, parents of a children's choir in South China are seeking refunds for a trip to a singing competition in Japan that they canceled over concerns of radiation leaks. Smart. Don't plan on attending the Olympics either. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment. But first, 
A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is listener-supported and relies on your donations to keep operating. If you can help us meet our goals, please do what you can. Any amount is welcome. Hey, how about a Starbucks donation, the equivalent of what you'd pay to take me out for a cup of coffee? It's an easy way to get started. But don't let that limit you. Give what you can. Don't wait. Do it now. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and know that whatever amount you can offer is deeply appreciated as a sign of your support for this show. And for that, you have my gratitude. So how aware are you of Becquerels? Well, most people aren't very, which is why the annual Becquerel Awareness Day gives us the opportunity to talk about radiation in food and specifically how it threatens to impact the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, known hereabouts as the Radioactive Olympics or the No-Olympics. First, we talked with Kimberly Roberson, founder of the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, which sponsors Becquerel Awareness Day. Kimberly is a certified nutritional educator and a former Greenpeace nuclear campaigner. The woman has serious creds. She started by giving us some background on FAN. Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, otherwise known as FAN, F-F-A-N, was formed in 2011 to bring awareness to the nuclear industry's impact on our food supply. FAN is a nonprofit project sponsored by Beyond Nuclear, and our mission is mothers and others working to protect food and water from man-made radiation. A lot of people listening know FAN from our work filing a citizen petition legal document with the FDA calling for testing of food in the ongoing wake of Fukushima and also for forming a national database of those results that would assist with research going forward. Now, our newer petition that I wanted to talk more about today is focused on bringing awareness to the fact that the 2020 Summer Olympic Games are going to be held not only in the host city of Tokyo, but in Fukushima, believe it or not, about 12 miles away from the actual disaster site. So the petition is not just to you know, gain signatures, but also to educate people. And once people are informed, they can decide if they want to risk their health traveling there and also the health of their children. Many of the athletes that are in training now are adolescents or even younger for the Olympics, so that's very disturbing. One of the things you're doing to raise awareness is called Becquerel Awareness Day. What is Becquerel Awareness Day, and explain to us what a Becquerel is. A Becquerel is the chosen unit of measurement for radiation in food. A Becquerel is the equivalent of one atomic disintegration per second, Becquerel Awareness Day is something that came around, I think, in 2013. FAN established the date, and it's an annual um, event that we host. Because think about it, how many people know what a Becquerel is? It's just not really common knowledge, and it should be. And April 10th is Becquerel Awareness Day. It falls in between Fukushima anniversary uh, Three Mile Island, and then Chernobyl. And I think I've heard this referred to as nuclear meltdown alley. Were you the person who coined that phrase, Libby? Yeah. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was one of mine. Yeah. What are the risks that the athletes and any spectators who are planning to attend 
the 2020 Olympics. What do they need to know about the risks that they are facing, and is there anything they can do to protect themselves? For people that are going there, I, I mean, I would just recommend people not go there at all because I don't really know how someone can protect themselves when they're there. Do you fly to the country with your own supply of food and water? I don't know if that's going to be allowed. I don't know what kind of water and food they'll be serving there and offering. They may know that the international community is going to be watching them carefully, so they may be careful with the food that they sell at some of their venues, but we have no way of knowing that. I think the best thing to do right now is to let people know that this is untenable. We cannot abide by the situation of having Olympic Games in Fukushima. So I would recommend people sign and share our petition. What is the official name of the petition and where can people find a copy so that they can sign and then share it with their friends? It's No Olympics or Paralympics in Radioactive Fukushima, and it's unchanged.org, and it's accessible via FAN's website, ffan.us. We also have a Facebook page if people want to search that up and put in a request to join, and you'll be getting updates from there as well. We will also, of course, have a link up to both petitions on nuclearhotseat.com under this episode. You know, I wanted to mention as well that there's been considerable contamination from Fukushima detected in Tokyo, including their tap water, right? That's just Tokyo, which of course is bad enough, but to make it worse, by bringing it into the Fukushima prefecture 12 and a half miles away, think about it in a historical sense. Can you imagine the reaction to the international community of hosting back in 1996, 10 years after Chernobyl, hosting the games there instead of Atlanta? It's just unreal to think that it's gotten this far, that these plans are in place. I recall in the 2016 Summer Olympic Games, which took place in Rio, there was tremendous concern about diseases and pollution and plastic and all kinds of things that were in the waters that people were going to be doing the aquatic events in, the ones that were in the ocean. Yet here we have a situation where it's radioactive contamination that the athletes are going to be exposed to should they actually show up and compete. Thus far, at least as far as mainstream media is concerned, we don't hear anything about radioactive contamination at Fukushima. Hopefully the petition will help to generate more interest in that. But we have a lot of the same concerns, only on steroids probably, not to make a a joke. The athletes will be competing in water, water sports, in water that is most likely not even been filtered properly for radiation. They'll be breathing at faster and deeper rates and inhaling much more deeply. And in addition, sports fans of all ages will pay top dollar to travel to Japan and Fukushima for the summer games and who will be monitoring their food and water or the air that they're breathing. It will be pretty impossible if they're outside to monitor their air. It's like a mass experiment on a scale like we've never seen before. We don't know what safety measures the Japanese government and the Olympic and Paralympic committees are even taking to ensure that people don't get sick 5, 10, 20 years down the road. So, Kim, again, for people who wish to sign this petition and learn more about what's going on and to genuinely become aware of Becquerel, where can they go and what do they need to do? Our website, Fukushima Fallout Awareness, www.ffan.us, 
And if you scroll down just a little ways, you'll find the link to the petition, No Olympics or Paralympics in Radioactive Fukushima. Kimberly Roberson of Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network. We will, of course, have a link up to the FAN website where you can find the petitions to sign. It will be under this episode, number 302. Next, I spoke with two brilliant, genuine experts on nuclear matters. Cindy Folkers is the radiation and health specialist for Beyond Nuclear, and Nancy Faust, who seems to be becoming a prized regular here on Nuclear Hot Seat, is communications manager and research team member for Simply Info, a not-for-profit research collective that holds and manages the world's largest public archive of data on the Fukushima disaster. We spoke on Friday, March 31st, 2017. Cindy Folkers and Nancy Faust. So good to have you with us this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Let's start out in considering food and what the possibilities there are in using science and technology to keep us safe from radiation in our food. Hi, this is Cindy. I think that there are absolutely positive things that we can get from science and research and testing our food to keep us safer. But I think that there are limitations to what science can offer us, and I think that we need to understand what those limitations are in order to use this to its best advantage while not exposing ourselves to risks that we could have prevented if we did initially understand what those limitations are. So, for instance, if we're talking about two specific isotopes in the case of nuclear power catastrophes like Fukushima or Chernobyl, one of those would be cesium-137-134. The other one would be strontium-90. And those are just two of a number of different isotopes that are radioactive that could be at issue and might be contaminating our food. Cesium-137 is easier to measure because it gives off a type of radiation that is more easily seen by our measuring equipment than strontium-90. And the kind of radiation that's given off by strontium-90 doesn't travel very far. It's much harder to measure, but it is much more of an issue and a biological detriment if you take it into your body through inhalation or ingestion. So these are the things that we have to be aware of. And there are some limitations to the testing, which I think, Nancy, you should talk more about the specific limitations. This is Nancy. There's different types of testings, and some are better than others. There's sodium iodide detectors that can be used to test food, but they can only go down to a certain accuracy level. So if you're looking at food that doesn't have huge quantities of contamination, they may show as non-detected, but there may actually be small levels of contamination in the food. Some laboratories use what's called a germanium detector. Those can get down to very small amounts below one becquerel, but that requires them to run the counts for a very long time. So instead of running the test for an hour, they may run a test for 24 hours to try to get a really good accuracy down to a low level. And a lot of times when we see testing being done by various government agencies or even various industries just trying to show you know, that they've tested food, we don't see that level of detail. They're not using highly accurate equipment. They're not documenting what their run times are, or they have very high thresholds of error, which means there could be something in there, but they're not getting an accurate enough reading. For people who may not be familiar with it, 
What is the danger connected if you ingest something that has cesium-134, cesium-137, or strontium-90 in it? This is Cindy. I'll do cesium really quickly because I think if we want to talk about the Olympics, um, cesium is going to be a different kind of danger. And for most people, I say most people, it's probably going to be less of a concern because cesium can wash out of the body. I think the outside number of that is a few hundred days maybe. But if you are pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant, because pregnancy is such a short life stage, it's nine months, and during that development of pregnancy, there are unique developments that are going on that are uniquely vulnerable uh, that happen only once in a lifetime. So you get one shot at being really good or, or developing organs or bones that are healthy. Even lower doses over a few weeks can potentially cause damage during that very sensitive time. So, or what I'm saying for cesium counts more for people who are not thinking of getting pregnant or who might be eating contaminated food for a short amount of time. It doesn't mean that there isn't danger from cesium-137. It just means that it's a different kind of danger. And in any case, if you're thinking of becoming pregnant or you are pregnant, you should probably avoid ingesting any of it at all. That brings up two different thoughts. First of all, what is the difference between the risk faced by women and by men and also is there any difference with children? Yes. In general, women are more susceptible to radiation damage than men, and children in turn are more susceptible than women, with female children being more susceptible to radiation damage than male children. And that's in general. Now, what's interesting is I was just talking about cesium a little bit ago. I'll talk about strontium-90 now. Why I want to focus on strontium-90 is that even a one-time ingestion of strontium-90 can pose a danger. Of course, this will happen if you're pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant, but it is also for children, older and younger, and for females. And here's why. Strontium-90 poses a danger if you inhale or ingest it because it has a fairly high energy radioactive decay, which is a beta particle. It has a fairly long, what's considered a half-life, which is about, it's just under 30 years, but that's not as long as it's going to be hazardous. It's actually hazardous for 10 to 20 times that. And so if you're trying to determine strontium-90 and its hazard, you've got to do one of two things. You've got to see how long its hazardous life is, which is really for biological detriment. We should be looking at hazardous life, not half-life. And you need to figure out how long it resides in the body. And strontium-90 resides in the body for a pretty long time, especially if it lodges in the skeleton. So in general, They've done studies where they've looked at where strontium-90 lodges in the body, and there are some very interesting specifics for strontium-90 uptake. One experiment they looked at, females between the ages of 0 and 20 years collected a higher level of strontium-90 in their ovaries than was expected, and they didn't really have an explanation for why that was. Females in general in their bone tissue collect strontium-90 at seven times the amount as males. And bones, of course, contain bone marrow, so 
So this is a big deal where strontium-90 collects in the bone because it can affect the blood cells that are produced. The bone marrow's job in your body is to produce blood cells, white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. So any sort of collection of a radionuclide inside your bone structure can affect the bone marrow that resides within. For adults, they tend to collect strontium-90 on the surface of the bone. What's interesting is that because strontium-90 beta can travel about a centimeter, the smaller your bones, the closer it can get to the bone marrow inside, potentially harming it. And so this, of course, raises questions for children, for fetuses and infants who are all much smaller than adults and who can take strontium into their systems and it can reside in their bone structure closer to the bone marrow which produces your blood cells. There's a few more interesting points. Children, of course, are turning over a high growth rate, so they're growing very quickly, as are fetuses and infants. And because they're growing so quickly, they need the raw material to help with that. Because strontium is a calcium mimic and it does collect in bone, that means that when these children are collecting strontium instead of calcium in their bones, this strontium can incorporate into the bone matrix or the hard bone mineral and that's the part of the bone that really doesn't change over once you even grow into adulthood. It can stay with you, that material inside your bone, for years and irradiate you for years. So that is why even a one-time ingestion of strontium-90 can pose a risk. Infants take up strontium-90 preferentially compared to calcium, whereas older children and adults seem to prefer calcium. So infants not only are collecting more strontium-90 and children are growing and collecting more strontium-90 in general if they've ingested it, they seem to, in addition, prefer strontium to calcium. Nancy, it's clear that we need to protect ourselves from exposure to radionuclides. What kind of testing is currently taking place in Japan? And is there any testing taking place in the United States? There is some testing taking place in Japan. Testing done by their governmental health authority has been going on since 2011, but that testing has kind of evolved over time. What we've seen is they're doing a large amount of testing, but they're not doing it focused on the food types or the regions where there's more of a radiation concern. So what we saw when we looked at a review of the 2016 food testing in Japan was only 2.5% of that testing was done on foods from Fukushima Prefecture. Many of these foods that are tested are from far-flung areas of Japan. There are large amounts of testing of beef samples from other parts of Japan. And these are foods that are not even expected to be contaminated. So the government will tout that they did you know, over 200,000 readings in a year, but most of those readings are irrelevant. And when only 2.5% are actually foods from Fukushima Prefecture, that's kind of concerning. So that testing, in many ways, is not very useful for someone trying to determine the safety of various aspects of the food supply in Japan. As far as testing in the U.S., there's been very minimal testing. U.S. FDA did some initial testing in 2011, but what they did is they went out and gathered samples from stores that sold Japanese food imports, but they got them right after the disaster. So they were testing rice in March of 2011, but that rice was harvested in the fall of 2010. So you know, when they're testing things that 
were not even exposed to the potential contamination, those testings give people a false sense of security. They declared this testing, didn't find anything scary, so we're going to stop doing it. The only other testing that's available is called the Total Diet Survey, and the FDA does this every year, and they publish about every four years. They recently published a group of tests from 2006 to 2014, but they did not differentiate the date or the region of those tests. So we don't know what foods were collected before or after Fukushima in the United States. Now with those tests, there were a few that had some cesium contamination, but what we found even more interesting was the large number of strontium-90 contaminations that were found. These were low numbers, but the threshold for how much strontium-90 is of concern is a low threshold anyway. And the one we found the most disturbing was almost all of the baby food samples had strontium-90 in them to some level. My jaw just dropped. This is Cindy. So what I just talked about was more of the biokinetics. That's where strontium goes in bodies of different kinds, women and men and children and infants, et cetera. What the health impacts actually are once the strontium-90 reaches its target are cell damage known to be associated with diseases, could be depletion of red blood cells that leads to anemia, which in turn causes excessive tiredness, improper blood clotting, some of these things are subclinical and may not be able to be tied back to the strontium-90 contamination of the body, but it could surely be a factor in any of these kinds of lower functioning. And then decreased disease resistance. We have seen in Germany post-Chernobyl cloud deposition that perinatal mortality increased as a result of the increased deposition of strontium-90. These studies actually haven't continued, but that seemed to be an effect that persisted until the end of 1998. And then we've also seen significant increases in incidence of leukemia among people who have been exposed to strontium-90 through environmental contamination and then food. What are the problems we face in trying to test radiation levels in food? This is Nancy. Some of the problems when they're trying to do food samples involve, as I mentioned before, the run times of the lab tests, but also foods need to be pulverized down so that they can be tested. So running a sample isn't an easy process. It can take up to a day to run a sample. You have to process it by pulverizing it in a blender and putting it into a container and running the test. So anything you're testing is then basically unusable for anything other than a lab test. So most testing is done as a spot testing, but it can be highly variable. You can have something in one field that is highly contaminated and two fields over is not. And unless you're spot testing everything, you're not really getting a clear idea. And even spot testing takes a large amount of spot testing to kind of get an idea of how often you're going to find something contaminated in that type of food in that region. This is Cindy. I have to say that when Fukushima first began its catastrophic release of radionuclides, I really looked at food monitoring as a really good possibility and that we'll to tell what was going on and we would be able to protect ourselves. And I have to say that even though I still absolutely support food monitoring, since that time in my study of this particular science and in investigation and research and all of that, I'm afraid that I'm coming to the conclusion, like I stated earlier, that 
it is not the savior that I wished it would have been. And I don't know how we can overcome that. I think at this point, like I said, we need to just be very aware of what the uncertainties are and what the limitations are. One of the concerns that I have, and actually I ran across this concern in stark relief when I was investigating something recently, that use of food monitoring can give you a false sense of security because you think that you have control over what is and isn't contaminated and control over whether or not to eat that. But there are two problems that I have with this, and that is how low of an amount of radioactivity can we feel comfortable ingesting? And again, depending on the life stages that you're talking about, on the gender of the people that you're talking about, whether or not there are children involved, I really have to ask the question, and I want people to think about this, when did it become okay to eat even a little bit of man-made poison? In this case, radioactive poison. When did that become okay? And is it okay? Because from where I sit and from what I know, particularly about pregnancy and early childhood, ingesting any of this stuff is never, ever a good idea. And it's just too sensitive of a life stage. There are too many things that can go wrong. There's too much unique development happening that can be thwarted or damaged. And so that's one thing that I really want people to consider. The second thing is is that there seems to be evidence that even in Japan, as the accident continues and we have to deal with the contamination in the environment there, the people who live there, how much is food monitoring used to keep those people in areas where they might otherwise not feel safe living or to enable them to eat food that they might otherwise think is not a good idea. And so that's what I think we need to re-examine, is how we're using food monitoring for the good things that we need to use it for, but how we are also integrating into our life and our eating of food all of the uncertainties and the potential damage that could come from being too secure in thinking that food monitoring is going to give us all of the information that we need. We've been talking about government and official measurements of radiation in food and the problems with it. Is there any difference when citizen groups get together and do their own monitoring, especially in Japan? This is one of the kind of positive things that came out of the aftermath of the disaster. People were not confident in what the government was telling them, so they started setting up their own testing labs. And there's a testing lab in Awaki in Fukushima. It's a citizen lab, and they've been doing samples for the last couple of years. They have good quality equipment. They have good lab practices. And they are testing the things that people are concerned about. So someone is concerned about the soil in their yard or the dust from their vacuum cleaner or the food they bought at the grocery store or the produce from their backyard. And so they're taking in things that people are actually eating. So this is very representative of where people are concerned and what they're actually consuming. And what they're finding is it's not that everything is contaminated, but it's very spotty and it's hard to predict. So they'll come up with a list of things that were contaminated, but it wasn't everything. But then again, they'll also find one where they'll test something and boom, they'll get this very large reading that no one expected. 
So they don't do a large volume of testing every year, but they're starting to pick out these little blips where the problems are. They've also been doing, uh, as I said, they've been doing vacuum cleaner bag testing and testing out of people's ductwork systems in their buildings and found some readings that were just outrageous. And there was one vacuum cleaner bag that registered at 50,000 Beperols per kilogram. And this was just an outrageous amount of radiation to find in someone's vacuum cleaner bag six years after the disaster. That is outrageous. Let's shift gears here slightly and bring this down to a reality that is going to be faced by a lot of people. The 2020 Tokyo Olympics seem bound and determined not only to still happen in Japan, but they are planning to hold events and even have housing for elite athletes within the evacuation zone, and specifically referring to the soccer and baseball and softball events that are going to be held in proximity with J Village, which is where TEPCO used to house the workers for Fukushima Daiichi because it was only 12 and a half miles away from the site of disaster, which is still ongoing. What kind of threat, what kind of risk is going to be faced by the athletes and potentially by the fans should they decide to come and partake of Olympic events in this area? I think considering one of the points that Nancy was making when we are talking about people going in to participate as athletes at the Olympics in 2020 or as people who are spectators, I think some of the things they're going to have to consider is that not all of the food that is going to be offered them might be clean. And I think that's going to be an important thing for them to realize that it probably hasn't all been tested, certainly not for isotopes like strontium-90, which are harder to measure. And it may not have been tested properly. And since it's going through the official Japanese testing from the government, and there are serious reservations about that, that people need to realize that even staying a few weeks in those conditions and potentially eating this food, which might be contaminated, is a risk. One of our concerns with using J-Village or moving people back into the close proximity of the plant is this is still a dangerous industrial site. If they were to have another accident at the plant, and that is certainly possible, you now have a large number of people 12 miles from this site that would need to be evacuated, could potentially be exposed. There are also problems, even when you see that they've cleaned up an area, like they may have cleaned up the grounds at J-Village and gotten the radiation levels to be lower, is... Contamination blows back in with dirt and dust. There's also something that has been discovered that has been found in the evacuation zone and as far away as Tokyo is these reactor substances. They've been dubbed black stuff and glass spheres. What these are is they're bits of fuel and metal from the reactors that was ejected during the blast. And they're microscopic. And they're finding them in these different areas as, as researchers are doing more research. But what's most concerning about these is that they're small enough they can be inhaled. And workers that were involved in fighting the disaster at the plant, a number of these workers were found to have inhaled these substances, but because they're insoluble, they never leave the body. So now these workers have permanent radiation exposure in their lungs because of what they've breathed in. But the actual distribution and quantities of these materials has never been clearly quantified or identified. 
there's this as a concern that people may be breathing this stuff in. There's also the fact that there are still hot spots all over Japan. As the contamination moves through the environment, it gets washed away by rain, it moves with the dirt, you'll find spots where the radiation levels are quite high, but then you'll go somewhere else like into a town center that's been cleaned and it won't be so bad. So depending on where you are and what's going on can deeply affect how much you're exposed to. What, if anything, can be done to protect our health other than not go to the Olympics? This is Nancy. My main suggestion would be that people look at what foods are commonly found to be contaminated. That at least gives some idea what things could be contaminated. But this is still kind of a shot in the dark because without really complex and a comprehensive testing, it's really hard to tell. I really think that women who are thinking of becoming pregnant or are pregnant should probably think seriously about not attending the Olympic Games because it is such an uncertain situation, because contamination can move and you can't be sure either whether you're getting an external dose if you walk a little bit off a path or go into the woods or someplace where it's a little off the beaten track or eating food that might not have been properly tested or, in fact, tested at all, I just honestly would not take the chance. You've certainly given us a lot to think about, and especially anybody who might be considering going to the 2020 Radioactive Tokyo Olympics. For now, I want to thank both of you, Cindy Folkers and Nancy Faust, for being my guests this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Cindy Folkers of Beyond Nuclear and Nancy Faust of Simply Info. Activist shout out. Well, the activists sure have been active. First, Bruce Gagnon of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, who was featured on Nuclear Hot Seat number 300 on March 21st, just two weeks ago. Bruce got arrested with eight others in a snowstorm at the Bath Ironworks in Maine during the christening of another destroyer built there and outfitted with so-called missile defense systems. The Aegis 9, as they're called, were arrested and charged with trespass. A great launch to their conference next weekend in Huntsville, Alabama. Pivot towards war, U.S. missile defense and the weaponization of space. And by that, they mean nuclear weaponization, because that's what it is. So everybody there, stay safe. Then there are the highly dramatic protests that are pouring out of North St. Louis. That's where illegally buried World War II nuclear weapons waste at the Westlake landfill and the unstoppable underground fire burning under the adjacent Bridgeton landfill are a mere 600 feet apart at best. And the soon-to-be-dearly-departed Environmental Protection Agency has been clinging to its bungled jurisdiction over the site, even as the Army Corps of Engineers' Cruise Wrap Program, which is designed to take care of this exact kind of nuclear nightmare, is excluded. And the media has gone cold on the story. What's an activist to do? Here's what. Alex Cohen of So Much Water and others engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience, and all of a sudden, people have been listening. I spoke with Alex on April 2nd, 
less than 24 hours after the protest ended on April 1st. And no, it was not a joke. Alex, first of all, I have to say congratulations on the action yesterday. Mazel tov. Thank you. Let's start out by describing the action that you and others took at the Westlake Landfill yesterday and the groups that were involved in it. Earth Defense Coalition, which I'm a co-founder of, put together an action, and we were joined by members of the Soul Fire Caravan who really helped make this possible. We deployed trash cans filled with 500 pounds of cement with lock boxes embedded inside of it, and we deployed that at the Westlake Landfill at the transfer station in between the radioactive waste and the burning landfill fire, and then also at where they store all of their trucks. And we basically put our bodies in the way of their operations to disrupt business as usual. What was the purpose behind this demonstration? Ultimately, we wanted to bring attention to international news of the devastating history that's at this site. And we wanted to bring it in a position where our elected officials of Missouri no longer have the comfort of ignoring this issue. And we also wanted to put our bodies in the way of Republic Services who's been lying to this community, poisoning this community, and lobbying against a permanent and safe solution. How long did it take for this to be planned out? And how in the world did you move 500-pound containers of concrete in place without anybody stopping you? Well, we had a lot of help from uh, comrades, and it was intense, you know, deploying the barrels into the action as trucks were actively leaving the site as this action was taking place. So luckily, we were able to stop the trucks and communicate that this is a nonviolent civil disobedience action, and luckily for our side that those trucks weren't going to leave today and do uh, business as usual. How long did it take to plan out? We've definitely been planning this for a long time, and I know that me, myself, ever since I found out about the issue at Westlake Landfill, I've only gotten more and more pissed, and so this has kind of been a dream of mine for many years. It's always nice when dreams come true. How long did it take before they discovered you, and what was it like when the first of the security forces or police forces showed up on site? So I know from my blockade, uh, the one that I was at, since there was two separate blockades, the security was there immediately, the Republic security of workers, because we actively stopped in the process of them trying to leave. And I'd say about 10 minutes after we were all locked in and in place, the police then showed up on site. How long were you and the others chained in place? And what happened to release you? And what happened from that point on? Both blockades lasted a total of 12 hours that we shut down the Westlake landfill, which is a very successful action. Bridgeton police did not have the means to cut us out, so they called in St. Louis County, who brought in a tactical unit who used power tools, including jackhammers and saws, to basically saw us out of our cement barrels. We could have released ourselves very easily, actually, but we were all committed to staying until our demands were met or we were arrested. Were you arrested? Yes, 12 people were arrested at the action, and all 10 people that locked down were arrested. We were charged with trespassing, disruption of the peace, and interfering with arrest. We were booked in jail, and surprisingly, they released us within a few hours on a no-cash bond. Where does this go from this point? 
this was a launch of a nonviolent civil disobedience campaign, and this is definitely one of many actions to come. We've played by the rules for years. This has been an issue in St. Louis for 44 years since it was illegally dumped and only started to gain momentum when, unfortunately, the underground landfill fire started burning next door. This was a launch and a bold statement that we're done with talk. We are done playing by their game, and we're going to continue to show up and put our bodies in the way of what they're doing until our demands are met. And this site is finally remediated, just like every other site in St. Louis containing the same waste. What do you feel has been the result in terms of impact on the general population? I think it was good. We got a ton of community support. Every group that's been fighting this came to join us at the landfill and watch from the sidelines and support us. It's gotten statewide attention. It's also gotten national attention, which is really what we need so we can put enough pressure on our elected officials to reintroduce legislation to pass this over to QSRAP and not only reintroduce it, but fight for it hard on the Senate and House floor so that way it does not lose again because people living by this landfill are losing every day. With the plans in place to dismantle the EPA, which right now is clinging to its jurisdiction over this site. What, if any, impact is the dismantling of the EPA having on the issues and the cleanup of Westlake? Well, you know, people that are trying to call the EPA about this site haven't even been able to get a hold of anyone, which is definitely terrifying to those living in this community who can't get answers from the current agency that's in charge. While they haven't been our favorite agency or played in our favor at all, it is important that while this remains a Superfund site, it is important that we have a strong Superfund program so that way, while it remains a super fun site, we can still get the answers we need and we can still have at least some government accountability. Anything else you'd like to add at this time? I would just like to encourage other people to that are handling issues of radioactive waste or environmental disasters across the nation to look at this action as inspiration and deploy actions like this in your cities where these things might be happening and really rise up and start to fight this. All of these issues, we're all connected in one nuclear family, and we really need to start envisioning what it looks like to put our mind and our bodies and our spirits on the line to really resolve this issue. So the action was on Saturday. I spoke with Alex on Sunday. And then on Monday, April 3rd, just yesterday, this same group descended upon the offices of Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill hands painted red to represent the blood of those who have died in St. Louis from exposure to this nuclear waste, including a friend who lived to see Saturday's protest and died on Sunday. The demonstrators demanded Senators McCaskill and Roy Blunt, as well as local representatives Lacey Clay and Ann Wagner, introduce legislation to transfer responsibility for this site to the Army Corps of Engineers FUSRAP program immediately. More media coverage, more attention. Can't wait to see what Alex and this group of activists dream up and then execute next. Here's today's final thought, and it's a continuation from where we just were. It's spring, when a young or old activist fancy turns to thoughts of how to get one's point across to the world, or at least the powers that be. Whether the issue is one of local nuclear dangers, such as faced in North St. Louis, or the ultimate threat of nuclear annihilation that hangs over all our heads, 
as was being discussed at the United Nations, it seems that the roadblocks, log jams, and other cliches of stoppage are dissolving and we are moving forward. Maybe it's the inspiration of having watched the brave, peaceful warriors of Standing Rock and the No Dakota Access Pipeline protests stand up to their oil-loving tormentors while armed with only prayer and truth. Maybe it's the horror of realizing that Trump can launch a nuclear bomb to destroy any country on Earth in only four minutes and no one can stop him. Maybe it's just that we're all waking up to remember that, yeah, there are nuclear bombs in the possession of nine countries, many of whom loathe each other as a matter of national pride. Whatever the reason, it seems that more and more activists are being, well, active. And that's just it. A movement consists of people moving in a specific direction towards an agreed-upon goal. There are many movements against the nuclear encroachment on our lives and our biosphere. All of them deserve our support. And no one can do all of them. So don't go nuts. Choose one that appeals to you. Then, like its Facebook page, sign a petition, visit a website, read some articles, make a donation. See what appeals to you, figure out what you can do, and then find your own way to do it. It doesn't have to be a big step. It just has to get done. And one by one, a bit and a piece at a time by increments, there will be change. And I promise you, activism is more fun than whatever's on television and way more fulfilling than your day job. And who knows? If the stars align, you just might end up starting your own podcast. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 4th, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from Mainichi.jp, DemocracyNow.org, TheBulletin.org, Forbes, New York Times, NHK.or.jp, CapeCodTimes.com, and the wonderful reporting of Christine Legere, DeUnRenard.wordpress.com, Greenpeace.org, South China Morning Post, WebUrbanist.com, RT.com, Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, Bob Alvarez, and then there's the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission Events Report, thanks to Erica Gray. And a shout-out to the big-hearted planet protectors and peaceful warriors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. Hey, I need your help. I am within striking distance of 2,000 likes, so get on down to the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site. Not the podcast site. Don't ask me how I managed to get two Nuclear Hot Seat sites on Facebook, but I did. But go to the blog site. That's the one with the logo on it. And join. Like. Share our posts with your loved ones. Come on, let's see how fast we can get it to 2,000. And a reminder that Sean McGee's European Report will return next week, computer permitting. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to Info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provider. 
And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor and heart as possible, take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the cure for global warming is not nuclear winter. So you've all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.